When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth Shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make Shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply. What happens is we as women and as women of color are not allowed the same ability and or grace to mess up, to get angry, to set standards. And I feel like that is really where we need to develop. None of us are infallible. But when we set up a dichotomy where if you're the boss or if you're older, you're automatically a a horrible person, we look at people generationally and say, well, if you're millennial, you're great. If you're Gen Z, you're this. If you're Gen X, you're a jerk. Or if you're a boomer, forget it. We want you dead, right? That can't happen. I'm not a jerk because I'm Gen X and I have standards. My name is Tanzina Vega and I'm a modern minority. Welcome to Modern Minorities. This is a show about work and life, told through the lens of what makes each of us different. I'm Sharon Lee Tony, a Chinese-American girl born and raised in New York City. And I'm Raman Segal, an Indian-American boy who came from Alabama with a banjo on my knee. Through conversations with some really interesting people, we uncover the stories, perspectives, and often unspoken truths about how our guests uniquely experience the world. It doesn't matter where you're from, the color of your skin, or who you love. We're all minorities somehow, but we're no one's model minority. This is a show about all of you, for all of us. On today's show, we're talking to journalist Tanzina Vega, someone whose work I've been a big fan of for years. As an outspoken female leader on issues of race, gender, and inequality, Tanzina is someone we've been trying to get on this show for a while, and I was really excited for Sharon to get to learn about and meet her. For more than a decade, Tanzina Vega's journalism has centered on inequality in the United States through the lens of race and gender. She's been a reporter and producer for the New York Times and CNN, where her work spanned text, digital, and broadcast television. She then spent three years as the first Latina weekday host of The Takeaway on WNYC, New York Public Radio, one of my favorite shows on NPR. Tanzina has won numerous awards and covered many of the most consequential news events of the past decade, including multiple presidential elections, the COVID-19 pandemic, the rise of Black Lives Matter, Puerto Rico's political crisis, and the January 6th Capitol insurrection. Her work continues to be at the intersect of journalism, education, and outspoken activism. This is a really great conversation between Tanzina, Sharon, and myself that runs the gamut of Tanzina's personal and professional life, growing up on the Lower East Side of Manhattan to working in some of the most influential spaces and media, often with a minority and sometimes unpopular perspective. We think you're really going to enjoy our conversation with our new friend, Tanzina. Tanzina, welcome to the show. It's so great to finally have this conversation. Thank you, Raman. Thank you. Two years, pandemic babies, and we are here. (laughs) So much has happened. So much has happened. (laughs) Tanzina, I think a lot of people know who you are and kind of the work in, in your experience over the years, but... I guess the question folks might not know, where are you from? Yeah, I talk a lot. Well, I was going to say I talk a lot about this on Twitter, but (laughs) given that that may no longer exist um, in the next couple of days or weeks or who knows what's happening there, 
allow me to reintroduce myself. I was born and raised in New York City on the Lower East Side. You know, I always say I had the best views of the city, but we lived in public housing. Uh, so I grew up in NYCHA, which is uh, the largest uh, public housing development in New York City. And if I'm not mistaken, in the United States um, right now, uh, I think we we were neck and neck with Cabrini Green in Chicago for a while. But we still, you know, when people think about public housing and you think about those brick buildings, you know, that are, you know, clustered together, that's where I was born and raised. And uh, it was in a very, you know, interesting time in New York City. Mid 70s to early 90s was when we lived um, in that community. And, uh, you know, for all of the stereotype images of that time, um, there were also, you know, a lot of people who worked really hard. So I, I have a very nuanced view of what the working class is like because of my experience. You know, I grew up, like I said, in, a, in, in one of these tall brick buildings in Manhattan. So adjacent to, you know, what I call Oz, right? You could see the, Twin Towers outside of our window. You know, we were just a subway ride away from arts and culture and everything else. And yet the community was also, you know, had its its issues with uh, everything that was happening in the 80s and 90s in New York City. Drugs and crime and the war on drugs and the implications of that. And so that, you know, I'm a Gen Xer who was raised pretty feral also, you know, <laughs> we were like, did, did we have parents? We did. We've had parents. Um, and I said, you know, so I told somebody, I said, you know, my parents were really strict, but she said, yeah, but they were also probably like not emotionally there. Right. And I was like, yeah, like there were lots of rules, but, but, you know, you, they weren't watching out to make sure we weren't eating, you know, we were eating organic kale or whatever. Yeah. And so, you know, it was a very different time. They're making sure you were eating. Right. Yeah. They were just making sure you were fed. Right. Yeah. That was enough. And alive and breathing. Breathing, alive and fed and yeah. clothed. Tanzina, yeah. I think we may have been neighbors, perhaps. So I grew up in the Lower East Side of Manhattan as well, in Mitchell Lama housing. So <gasps> I lived in South Bridge Towers, which is pretty close to the seaport. Where were you? I was in 286 South Street, Two Bridges, LaGuardia. Yeah. Yeah. So I like exactly. I could see your building. Yeah, I know exactly where uh, you lived. So we were wow. we were probably running in the... Well, I didn't really run the streets till I got a little bit older, but we were definitely getting off the school buses together or whatever it was. So so Sharon, you, you remember then seeing the Twin Towers every day? Oh, yeah. I literally... I, I remember seeing the Twin Towers, but I also saw 9-11 right outside of my my window. Oh my like God. I was home when it happened Oof. and felt it like literally, you know, because I mean, obviously the impact, but like felt it, saw everything happening, people running. I mean, very traumatic, but totally remember the Twin Towers. That's how I rem- would remember how to get home, yes! right? Like that's yes. kind of, you would look for the Twin Towers and be like, I got to walk in that direction to get home. Yeah. Oh my God. People totally. who don't understand that, like you go to the West Village <laughs> And you could walk home from the West Village. It was a schlep. Yeah. You know, as we say yeah. in New York, it was a long walk, you know, it's a schlep, but you could do it. And you would just look at the Twin Towers and be like, I just got to keep walking in that direction. And I know I'm going the right way. Mm-hmm. And that mm-hmm. was, wow. Wow. I rarely met other people who can make that yeah. reference. Yeah. And when you said that, I was like, I know exactly which buildings she was in. And yep, yeah, totally on South Street. And a lot yes. of friends, a lot of my friends uh, lived in that neighborhood as well. We were right up a few blocks up from the old New York Post 
building yeah. where they actually used to make the New York Post. And then there was a Pathmark there that, remember the Pathmark, that was a big deal. It's now a luxury high rise, the Pathmark. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So much has changed. And yet those brick buildings remain, right. which is something that I've personally been I'm actually in touch with the Chicago. Chicago has a museum of public housing. Uh-huh. And I've been in touch with them because they're trying to collect stories of people who've lived in public housing in the country. And so it's a very, it's an issue that I, I am very much deeply connected to and also deeply interested in as a, as a journalist. Sure. Well, there's just so much history and culture too, right? Because I know at least in my area, my my parents still live in those buildings and so all like generations of people. So whether it's you know, now their grandparents, but like grandparents and and then their kids. And then usually like my own parents were trying to get us to get grandfathered into, you know, a different kind of uh, apartment within the same complex. And, and it's, it's watching those neighborhoods develop and change. And in many ways, to your point, Pathmark became a luxury high rise. There's so much gentrification, like Seaport. Now I haven't gone down to Pier 17, but I've seen that all of those stores are just like five-star Michelin restaurants now, you know, whereas when we were growing up, it was kind of nothing for a while in the 80s and 90s, but then became more of like a mall. And now it seems like it's like a, almost like a luxury strip of gourmet food places, but yet within the communities themselves, still, you know, still income-based, still working class, um, still very heavily immigrant communities. And I want to emphasize the working part of working class. You know, there are a lot of folks who are talking about that. And I think that there is often a misrepresentation of people who live in public housing as mooching off the system or not, Mm -hmm. you know, Mm -hmm. really work. And it's like, no, 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 no. Actually, the people who live in public housing, the majority of them are working. They are working in jobs that aren't paying, you know, probably what, you know, the rest of us. So sometimes multiple jobs as a result. Multiple jobs. Um, Sometimes they're municipal city workers that are working there. Sometimes, you know, you have families that are headed up by, you know, grandparents often. Again, all the things that we talked about, including the war on drugs, you know, has continued to to reverberate in our community. A lot of people only know that as the Central Park Five, but that was my generation. Those guys are my age, right? I watched that play out in real time in New York City as a kid. And so, you know, all of the effects of gentrification, of, you know, uh, hardcore policing, of drugs, of crack, of all of these things really had an effect on our family structures. But I, I often speak and write as much as I can about people who are working class because there is a, there is a real sort of romanticizing, I think, of white working class Americans and, mm-hmm. you know, that era, the factory worker, but people don't tend to think about the black and brown working class mm-hmm. and and the work that we do. So, yeah, someone actually posted, I'm going to keep referencing Twitter, God help us, but someone, <laughs> someone posted on Twitter the other day, like, you know, how people always say, well, they make fun of, they use the phrase, you know, flipping burgers. And the person said, you know, 90% of you would drop dead in a commercial kitchen. Right. You wouldn't be able to handle it. And I said, absolutely right. You know, we denigrate the work of caregivers, of people who live in public housing, of, you know, food delivery folks, you know, all of that. And so I, I find it really important to make sure when we talk about public housing that we talk about the fact that there are myriad people who live there 
who have different experiences. Both my parents got master's degrees while working full-time, while raising us in public housing, right? Wow. They did it at City College. They didn't do it at Princeton. And so that's not, you know, looked upon as like, oh, it's a big deal. But no, 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 it's actually a really big deal. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, and as a being a parent myself, I'm like, when did they find the time to get a master's? (laughs) It's crazy, right? And I feel it's like now we have tech and the internet and all these things that help more or even like, and I sometimes say it's like, and English is my first language, mm-hmm. you know, like with my folks coming up, they didn't have that. I, so Tanzina, I got to ask, cause we ask all of our guests and I already know the answer to this, but like, do you ever get asked the question, where are you really from? Actually, when I was at CNN, yeah, I wrote a, a piece about that question Yeah, and being asked that question. I remember reading it. Because yeah. Even though, and I think we're having a very different conversation these days about, especially in the Latino and Latinx and Latine community about, you know, race and proximity to whiteness and and other things. But I, my entire life, I have been asked that question. And, And in particular, it often comes from other people of color who are genuinely curious a lot of times in cabs <laughs> where, and, and I'll, and I say this because I I've have, never had, I've never had a Sikh guy ask me where in Punjab my family's from. <laughs> I'm joking. I've had that far too many times. <laughs> it happens. Right. And yeah, so, yeah. and partly it's now, now when they know your name, yeah. which if you get an Uber or something. So I have a name that I did not know was Bangladeshi. I'm Puerto Rican. And my Mother didn't know it. My mother kind of, you know, made my name up on a whim and, and you know, there's no romantic history of Tanzania or anything like that. Anyway, I always say it was the 70s and they went about it. And so with this name, people are like, especially cab drivers who happen to be from the region mm. will look at me and they'll be like, where are you from? And I'm like, New York, because I know what they really mean. <laughs> and they're like, no, 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 no. Where are you really from? Lower but East with- Side. Right. And that, right. And so we'll go back and forth. But you have a name, Tanzina. I'm like, oh, yeah, I'm Puerto Rican. Well, how did that happen? Right. So those are more, those feel like genuine attempts to connect, right? Mm-hmm. Where people are seeing my name and identifying me with their, you know, country of origin or whatever and looking at me and going, this doesn't make sense. Right. Mm-hmm. Then there are people who press that question um, and who make it very awkward. And I've had that happen in a lot of, professional uh, experiences, et cetera. And, you know, it's really the wrong question. And I think the most astute observation of my race came when I was teaching English as a second language in South Korea, must have been about 2002, 2002, 2003, in a remote town called Jinju in the south of South Korea. So about four hours south of Seoul. So basically, you know, towards the end of the peninsula. And one of my students, college student, looked at me and very matter of fact, we said, teacher, you're not white and you're not black. So what are you? Mm-hmm. And I stopped and thought, okay, well, they're the next two hours of class uh, <laughs> because now, you know, and partly it was because their um, visions of Americans were white people who were blonde and blue eyed or black people. But there was no in between. They, they, there was no, you know, so that's why it was a very astute question because she's right and she's also wrong, right? I am a multiracial person. I have indigenous and black and white family members. 
And it was one of the first times that someone genuinely said, you don't fit into either of these boxes. And what is that about? And so I said, well, why don't we talk about it? You know, tell me where you think I might be from. Tell me what you think I might be. And then we can kind of, you know, open up that conversation and talk about things like colonialism and, you know, the Caribbean and how, you know, I came to be and how my people, if you will, came to be. Um, and even then, the experience of being a Puerto Rican woman in Puerto Rico versus in the in New York, right? Oftentimes, we're racialized here in ways that we aren't. Uh, growing up, going to Puerto Rico, people, oh, you're you're, are you really Puerto Rican? And it was like, well, what what do you mean? Am I really Puerto Rican? <laughs> right? So, like these identity questions that emerge often depend on where you are um, geographically. And so I've never had, I think, a, a very, you know, even though I'm a light-skinned person and I understand the privilege that that brings, mm -hmm. I've never really felt unracialized, you know, or like I'm not a race of some kind or another that people kind of feel like, hmm, what is she? It's funny you say unracialized because I think about that a lot, like being unothered. Some, as a little kid, I was envious. I, I could not put this into words, but I was envious of people who were never unracialized or unothered, right? People who mm -hmm. lived comfortably in the majority and never had to think or second guess or feel ashamed of, you know, the music playing in your house sometimes, right? Like this is my own little kid stuff. But now I'm so glad I grew up with that because it, you know, kind of taught me all these subconscious pieces of empathy and understanding the, the way that cab driver can ask you the question correctly versus God bless them. The majority person who does ask you that question sometimes doesn't even know the right way or the right context to ask the question. And I think a lot about that as an older person, you know, because I don't take it for granted. Well, I had an incident once where it was an incident at, at a job. I almost say which which company, but I've worked at some pretty big places. Yeah, you have. And you know, and there was an incident during a uh, during the Trump uh, administration when. You know, he was either being elected or had just been elected. And so there were lots of, you know, lots of crazy things being said at the time. Mm -hmm. And so my editor and I are talking to this, this person, the guy, he was a white guy. And I think he genuinely was trying to connect, right? So asked me kind of where I was from and you know, Puerto Rico and, you know, oh, isn't it nice down there? And, and all of a sudden the conversation ended up talking about Trump and the wall. And I was like, I'm very confused how we went from Puerto Rico to Mexico. Like, just really not sure how that mm -hmm, turn mm -hmm, happened. Mm -hmm, My yeah. editor was also shocked. I think the guy was also like, oh, God, did I want to say that? Did I mean? <laughs> and I didn't know what to say, right? I was just standing there like, how the hell? So I'm like, do I, does this work? What do I say? Is he trying to be offensive? I don't know. Anyway, so my editor was so you know, aware. And she's a white woman at the time. And she was like, well, she's still a white woman, right? I mean, she's still a white woman, <laughs> but meaning like she was, she was, she's a white woman who, you know, was, was in the middle of this and conversation. Here I am, this person who writes about race and talks about race. And so she walks away with him and comes back and says, you know, I, I had to tell him that he, you know, microaggressed you. And I was like, that's really amazing that you picked that up, that you were able to speak yeah. to him. And then I felt terrible because I was like, well, did he mean it? Did he not? But at the end of the day, I was like, I felt really uncomfortable that we ended up in Mexico talking about the wall when I, all the guy wanted to know was where I was from. And so those, those are awkward <laughs> moments where you're just like, oh no, now I don't want to talk about this. I just, 
I didn't want to have that conversation, but yeah. I was just getting my coffee. <laughs> I was just getting my coffee, right? Like I remember just standing up. Oh, hi. Nice to meet you, John. And, you know, whatever. And next thing you know, we're, we're talking about the wall. And my editor's now like, oh, God, I have to prevent a microaggression from happening. And God bless them, right? Like, thank right. you. We're aware. I, I wrote about microaggressions for the New York Times and put that word in the paper. So I'm glad to know that my work, you know, served a purpose at least. Yeah. My wife, um, I ask her a lot, more so in the last, call it, 10 years of everything that's happened or the more conscious awareness we have of it. And I was like, hey, has this happened? And she's an Asian woman uh, in a technical scientific field. And she's like, yeah, I just kind of like sidestep my way out of the She like observes or her spidey sense goes off and she just kind of like steps back from the scenario, just slowly creeps out and like ninja vanishes from it. She's like, I just avoid those things like the plague. And I was like, I guess. I mean, sometimes you kind of have to be in it because sometimes people are unconsciously unaware, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah. And sometimes you're just tired and you're like, I just want to do my job. Yeah. And yeah. yet at the same time, it's like, but. This is the stuff I talk about. And like, you know, I think we're all entitled to take a break. Yeah. Frankly, I think, I think we all have to, especially if you're in the, in the fray, in the mix, in the whatever, Yeah, you know, I mean, even again, I'm here, we go talking about Twitter, but even, you know, in Twitter, it's exhausting to be there. It is a difficult place to be. Like I wrote a not bad about what, you know, is happening and, and what Musk I think is doing. And I said, you know, at the end of the day, it's not a place for the faint of heart. You know, so if you're over there waging wars or slaying the dragons of racism, you know, sometimes you need a break. It's true. Yeah. Twitter, Twitter's become, it's become a battleground, really. Mm -hmm. There's just a lot of opinions and yeah, lots of things that get hurled around on that platform. So you've alluded to many things. Well, you've actually mentioned many things of where you ended up going with your career and that you've worked for big companies and you've written op-eds and other things. But if we back this all the way back up to the Lower East Side in Manhattan, what did you want to be when you were a little girl growing up? So I don't think I knew. Mm -hmm. I had no idea. I was always making it up. I was like, I don't know, fashion designer? Is that something? <laughs> I guess that's like I was really, and I think part of it was because, again, to bring it back to the whole Gen X you know, feral uh, parenting thing. My parents were just happy that I was going to school, getting good grades and not in the mix, like not in the fray of anything bad, not dealing with drugs, teenage pregnancy, any of that stuff. And so- I was about to whole... say, unlike that Sharon girl, but then you just said yeah. all the other things and I couldn't use that. Because <laughs> she was in the mix from what I hear. Not really, not really. <laughs> right, 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 right. <laughs> but like, I mean, but that was really, Sharon, you know that. That was how it, it, I tell, talk to people about, you know, what it was like to grow up and your friends. I mean, I'm in my late 40s. I have friends who have grandchildren. Yeah. The age of my son, right? Yeah. Who's two and a half. So it was a very different time. So there wasn't as much emphasis on what do you want to do? What do you want to be? I did know this. I knew that I wanted to get out of that neighborhood. Mm. I knew that what I was seeing on television was so different than what my life was. Like, I remember one of the things that always stands out to me is watching sitcoms, you know, as a kid and A, feeling like, my God, will I ever look like that? You know, with the hair and the perfect, you know, white yeah. faces that we saw. I was always, and, and will I ever have enough money? The unreasonably large apartments in New York, which don't exist. I'm which convinced. don't exist. But you know which one really made me 
the houses, the suburbs. Yeah. 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 And the whole concept of having a back door totally always blew my mind. So many plots around the back door and who would come in through the back door versus yeah. the front door and your garage and the yeah. fact that, you know, you had a window where you could sneak out if you yeah. wanted to be with your boyfriend and like where does Santa come from? Like the whole concept of living in the suburbs was like, that is a world that I don't even, we just didn't have anybody in the suburbs, you know? So like, I knew what I didn't have. I knew what the rest of the world was doing in, in, in at least what, what they were portraying out to the world. So I knew I wanted to travel. And then as it got, as I got older and I got into college, I was still afraid of my voice because, you know, who was going to say you were going to be on TV mm. or you're going to be in the New York Times? You know, I, yeah. that's not yeah. realistic, you know? So I, I, I was almost afraid to dream too big. But then I just kept, somehow ending up in these, you know, in these companies. And my, my, I ended up in journalism by a temp job, really, you know, mm. working for a B2B magazine in the early night, right out of college, knew that I loved it, knew that I wanted to write, knew that I wanted to be a part of it. Um, and that was really my, my first entree into, and then when I realized how good, you know, the ad sales were, ha, 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 early <laughs> dot com. <laughs> bubble burst. Right. I was there for that too. Yep. But you know, there was a real, there was a real sense. Did I think, oh, I'm going to be on the front page of the New York Times? No. I just thought, keep your head down. One thing you learn growing up in public housing is, you know, nobody's going to give you anything. You got to work for it. You got to mm-hmm. be there. You got to show up. Mm-hmm. You know, you're up at the crack of dawn. You know, my parents were some of the hardest workers I've ever met. So like, that was what I had. You know, and even going into the New York Times, I was at the Times for eight years, but I started as a night clerk mm-hmm. on Saturday night at 6 p.m. And I was 32 years old, wow. you know? Yeah. And I was answering the phone at the Times, like, Metro, you know? <laughs> yeah. And like, wasn't even reporting, you know, but I was like, I didn't have kids. I didn't have a mortgage. I didn't have, you know, anything that was going to tie me down. So kind of, and then it just happened that I, I happened to be good at the thing. Well, that, that's the question I want to ask. What was the moment or the moments or one of those moments where you're like, oh, wow, I, either I'm good at this validation or I want to do this? Because it sounds like, you know, you kind of just kind of got to places, but things didn't happen. You, I think there's probably like a realization and kind of. Oh, there was a realization. Yeah, th- there was a realization when I was in grad school. Mm. That was the most deliberate move I made, right? I had been working for a trade magazine on Long Island. And in 2004, I know some of your listeners are probably like, I taught a high school journalism class this summer. And when I said 2004, I was like, were any of you around in 2004? But in 2004, I did my first podcast and it was terrible. You know, we were working with MP3 players and we didn't know what we were doing, but we did it. And that was when I realized, okay, I really love this journalism thing, this media thing, this magazine thing. I want to go and develop it. And I knew that if I didn't take a broader approach by going to graduate school or doing something like that, that I was going to sort of get pigeonholed into the B2B world. And again, I was, you know, older, went to grad school older. I did also, and I should say this, I did spend a couple of years abroad. I mentioned being in South Korea, teaching English. I went to Barcelona when I was in my mid-20s that was the first dream, right? I want to travel. I want to see the world. So I packed my stuff. I quit my job and I moved to Barcelona, Spain and ended up being there for four years. 
and working as a as sort of a an English teacher and also translator and you know had my own little business doing that and during that time I really became interested in you know the politics of of Barcelona versus the United States it was around 9/11 you know so there were lots of conversations about you know war and everything else and so that's when I started on my own sort of writing these pieces that I would just go home and write and write and write and write. And so I I thought, I don't know if this is journalism, but I really like it. And there's a newspaper in Spain called El País. And I think it's one of the best newspapers in Spain, one of the best papers I've, I've read. And that was really where I started to get clear that this is something I wanted to do. So coming back to the United States in 2004, starting that podcast for that company, and then in 06, going to grad school, again, as someone in her early 30s, I wasn't playing games. You know, I wasn't going to grad school for S&Gs. You know what I mean? I was going to grad school because I was like, this is going to be my career. I am quitting my job to do this, and I'm taking out a loan to do this. And so once I did that, there was no turning back. Like, that's when it was like, okay, you made a choice. You're committed to this. And I had no bones about starting from the bottom, bottom, bottom. You know, I didn't care that the New York Times was like, sure, we have one shift on Saturday night from 6 p.m. to 1 a.m., 20 bucks an hour. You want it? Answering phones. I said, absolutely, I'll take it. And then I'll work my way up, you know, and that's what I did. Not everybody does that. It inspired a lot of copying. You know, there were lots of people who were like, I'm going to do the same thing. And, And so, you know, that's great. And... Then I moved on, you know, I moved on to other, I really started being ambitious about my coverage and really being more deliberate about my coverage once I had sort of had been hazed to death at the New York Times. And like, (laughs) I will tell you one thing, it is not the place to learn how to be a journalist. It's not the place you want to cut your teeth. You know, most people started a small paper. It just didn't work that way for me. So the learning curve was very sharp. I did not go to the Ivies. You know, I didn't have those social connections. And so it was tough. It was tough. It was like, oh, I'm not, I don't know what language y'all speak here. I just know that I came here and I'm in the door. And you like the fact that I can report very quickly as a stringer. Right. That was the first thing I was on call for the time. So they didn't care. It's like eight o'clock in the morning. Hey, there's a murder in, in this neighborhood. Go. And figure it out. And so that was how I did it. You know, a lot of the shoe leather stuff and a lot of the saying yes. I always tell young people, say yes until you get to a position where you can say no. That was how I did it initially. But once I made that call to like, I'm going, it was actually, if you ask me when the aha moment was, it was in in Europe. And I was like, you know what? I'm, I'm ready to do this. I'm ready to go back to the States. I want to dedicate myself to this type of work. Once I made that call, it was like, this is an investment. I was paying for it and it took me 10 plus years to pay that loan back. And that was a public school with scholarship money. So I wasn't playing games when it came to like, you know, am I going to do this journalism thing or not? Nope. I'm pretty committed right now, you know. And now a word from our sponsor, the Department of Health and Human Services. Oh, yeah. HHS has still got it. Have they got a cure for my holiday shopping blues? Sure. I mean, if you count preventing COVID as the cure for the holiday blues. Well, I guess it is that time again to encourage everyone to get their COVID vaccine. Oh yeah, vaccines. (laughs) You know, getting my vaccine card updates is like getting my subway card punched. If only it came with a free sandwich. 
I think it did for a while, uh, at least free donuts. But, uh, <laughs> you know, Sharon, getting your latest updated COVID vaccine is even better with the holidays upon us, especially if it means getting more time to safely catch up with your family. Ah, yes. Updated vaccines now protect against the original COVID virus and Omicron, which means we all have more time to enjoy that home cooking and mom dishes that we've all been craving. Yeah, these latest vaccines are here just in time to make those family gatherings safer and extra special. Boom, just did it. Uh, did what? Find the perfect holiday gift for all your family, friends, and favorite <laughs> podcast co-hosts? No, even better. I just scheduled my free vaccine today. Oh, snap. That was pretty easy. Damn straight. Find updated COVID vaccines for everyone over the age of five at vaccines.gov. Just be sure to bring candy for everyone five and up. I'm a big fan of candy, for sure. Um, and our kids do like a good candy taster to, to go with all of their vaccines. Kids, anyone five and up deserves a post-vaccine candy treat, uh, <laughs> present company included. It is the holiday season after all. Fair enough. COVID is serious stuff, and we want to make sure all of you are ridiculously thoughtful, stylish, hip, and favorite podcast listeners are getting the latest and greatest COVID vaccines. Especially with those amazing holiday sweaters. <laughs> That's right, Sharon. COVID is still serious stuff, so we've all got to do everything we can to keep ourselves and the people we love safe. Let's all do our part to protect ourselves, our families, and our communities this holiday season. Talk to a doctor if you have any questions. You can find the latest vaccines near you at vaccines.gov. We can do this together. This spot was paid for by the U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, who we are big fans of. But now, back to our show. I got to ask a question that I'm just genuinely curious about. We don't have to get into specifics, but I think about this a lot, again, as I kind of grow further in my career. You have a very unique voice and a unique take and a unique approach to the way you do your work. And you're pretty authentically you in, in everything you do. That's been my observation, you know, since I've been listening, once I first started listening to you on the radio and then reading op-eds and kind of following your career, including on Twitter. And that sometimes gets people like us into trouble. Yep. Right. And I guess, how do you manage, again, without getting into specifics, but it's just like the perception and Sharon, I'm always curious about your perspective too, after Tanzina, it's like, you are strong female leaders at what you do. And sometimes our societal norms don't accept that. I, I'm not sure what what the framing of the question is, Tanzina. It's just like no, I get it. I get it. How do you how do you, how have you threaded that needle, and what has kind of been the lesson, especially now that you know we're now more grown ups in our career, we're senior people in our career, we're not coming up anymore. Well, first of all, thank you for the question because <laughs> I'm not sure what it was, <laughs> but it, no, I get the question. I mean, it's something that I um, have tried to put into writing. Yeah. For many years, it's something that I have had direct experience with more recently in my career. You know, there, there's been, I've had sort of this weird balance between imposter syndrome, and I hate that phrase, but like, do I even deserve to be here? Yeah, am I, yeah, am no. I, you know, I didn't go to Harvard. I didn't go to Yale. I didn't go to Princeton. I'm not married, you know, which believe it or not, that's a big thing, you know, being a single woman and doing this work and not being married to a big finance guy or something like that, you know, and I'm straight else, and I want to be married to a big finance guy. That would listen, be my so much easier. Listen, I'll take the finance out literally, like, please. We have these close friends uh, <laughs> where the husband is the finance guy and every and they're beautiful, wonderful people. Our kids love hanging out with each other. And every time my wife and I leave their house, I'm like, I'm sorry, I'm not a finance guy. Oh, <laughs> <laughs> well, 
someone at the Times, a reporter at the Times, again, very nice. You know, he was curious. But when I first started on on there, he asked me um, straight out. He goes, how do you plan on doing this career? Because all the women journalists I know are married to lawyers or finance guys or whatever. And I looked at him like, I hadn't even considered that. I'm so used to just carving the path and like keeping my head down and doing what I have to do and feeling like, do I really deserve to be here? At the same time, I made it in those spaces. So there was something about me that I'm learning now, I think in retrospect, that also was like, hell yeah, I deserve to be here. Yeah. Right? So on the one hand, it was like, I don't think I, I, you know, I don't think I write the right way. I don't think I, I know how to speak. Someone actually taught me the word asynchronously the other day. And since I'm working at a startup now, and I was like, great, those are the things I need to learn how to say, right? Can we catch up asynchronously, right? And I'm like, I don't speak like that. That is such a startup word. You're so right. Isn't it? Yes. Yes. It's like from the Slack generation. It's from the Slack. Yeah, exactly. Exactly. I've never used that word. Someone had to teach me that word last week. Right. And so this week I used it at least twice. (laughs) I'm so proud of you. I'm learning, guys. I'm learning. I'm 48 and I'm still learning because that's the question that I think, Roman, that you're sort of getting at. It's like, you know, how do you navigate this? And first of all, I didn't have, you know, my parents were both school teachers. They both got their master's degrees, but that is a far cry from working in ivory tower systems and mm-hmm. big corporations and the like. You know, my first job was 14 years old at an uh, investment bank called Lazard Frere. And I was, you know, working as a human resources clerk and, and, and proofreader for, you know, buy and sell tickets that were getting on the floor. And I was working overtime. I've never not worked. And so to me, the the question of can you work and hard and do this and do that? Yes, I can. At 15, I was being sent home in black cars because it was a heavy trading day, right? Mm -hmm, And my mother mm -hmm. was like, what is going on? (laughs) What what is this? You know, and the bigger question should have been, why am I working at an investment bank at 15 years old, right? Right, Like, And if I was a white guy who had been working at an investment bank as a clerk from 14 years old to 21, I'm sure multiple places would have opened their doors to me without a master's degree and without Mm -hmm. everything else, right? So you know that the stakes are different and you know that you're going to be asked for different things, especially without certain pedigrees. Even though when I look at my career, I'm like, my God, I've done things that half of y'all wouldn't even be able to do. Yeah. But, you know, beyond that, going to these places. And so, you know, when you're a clerk, which I was at the Times, and then you go to being a reporter, you're in a subservient, you know, it's a very like, you know your role, right? You know your position. And so I played my position and, you know, I did what I had to do. I was also like, hey, I have some great ideas. And, you know, I was, I always tried to maximize the time I had with the senior editors and like the executive editor at the paper. And so I would have elevator pitches down pat if I saw somebody that's how the race beat was born. I saw Jill Abramson and said, I've got this really big idea. I'd love to talk to you about it. She said, sure. Four months later, we had a meeting and I said, hey, I think race is a thing. I mean, I'm being very, you know, silly about it, but no, it was a really, this was six months before the killing of Michael Brown in Ferguson, Missouri. Right. And so I knew I've always been a visionary. I've always known that to your point, Roman, having the take that I have is very authentic. 
And I didn't realize just how authentic and how much people wanted that until I got on the air. Mm-hmm. Well, and it's, it's not even just what you say. It's kind of how you say it because right. your lived-in context that you're bringing, you know? Right. And I got to tell you, there are people that love it. <laughs> there are people that love it, especially the you, the listeners, the audiences, the readers. They love it. Right. I took a show that was struggling. Mm-hmm frankly, in terms of the optics of the show, when we're talking about public radio, in terms of Mm -hmm. the show, what the show had been through with the Me Too uh, Mm -hmm. movement Mm -hmm. and everything else, and turned it around and made it a a must listen for Mm -hmm. so many people who have stopped listening entirely. Mm -hmm. And that was my editorial vision. That was my editorial restructuring of the show, which was to say, Guys, we need to, I mean, I don't want to get too technical, but it was like, look, we are doing segments that are too short. We need to make them longer. We're doing segments without a why. We need to understand our our North Star as a show. We need some structure. And to me, the biggest editorial temples that I wanted to ground the show in were things that I saw happening across the country mm-hmm. that have actually gotten worse. Mm-hmm. So the wealth gap, yep. the wealth gap has gotten worse. The truth gap, which is what I called it before it became called misinformation, right? And the empathy gap, you know, and I think those things have just gotten progressively worse since I I started at the show back in 2016, 2017. Yeah. So that was my North Star. There was a recent story in Fortune, I think it was about Black women, specifically in the glass cliff. And what that means is oftentimes women and or people of color and or women of color are brought in to lead in times of crisis. And when you're brought in to lead and you're a woman or a person of color or, or both, period, and, and if things are going well, it's mm-hmm. hard. Mm-hmm. But when you're brought in to lead in times of crisis, it's even harder. Totally, yes. That is the glass cliff, right? So you go, it's this great opportunity. Everything's going to be, you know, you're the, you're the fix, mm-hmm. right? I was going in to replace a, a white guy who had been, you know, the subject of a Me Too investigation. Mm-hmm. And I was like, well, that's not really my only job here. You know, I'm also here as a journalist who... I'm also good at my job. I'm also yeah. really good at my job. And, and in fact, if you want to go back to the previous question about when did I realize, oh my God, this is my jam... Being a host of that show was when I said, oh my God, this is really my jam. Mm. And people were like, oh my God, this is really your jam, right? <laughs> and like, I had never hosted a radio show before, ever. But there was something natural and authentic that people were responding to it. I have almost like a selfish question because I'm with you. I'm also Gen X. I am also in a boss position. I am also a woman of color. And there's something that that combination demonizes me automatically before I even open my mouth. I'm already the bad guy, yep. you know, because I'm older, I'm a woman and I'm a person of color and I'm going to tell you what to do. And I'm Asian, which I think, you know, depending on how you look at it, but I have the whole tiger mom thing mm-hmm. about that as well. Right. So how do you navigate that? How have you been able to navigate that? And I guess related to that, how have you maintained an attitude of being open and flexible and wanting to learn about words like asynchronous, you know, because just from that story, like you're, you're totally willing to, to do new things and to learn new ways of thinking, but how have you been able to get into those rooms and actually make a difference when you're walking in with so much already against you? 
Well, I'll tell you a couple of things. I mean, I think I've always been willing. Mm-hmm. And that that's an indication that, you know, if you're going to grad school in your early 30s, that's an indication of a willingness to learn. If you're willing to say, okay, uh, I have a degree and yet I'm happy to work. Uh, and granted, I always say this with the caveat, no kids at the time, yeah. no mortgage at the time, yeah. right? Rent-stabilized apartments. That's mm-hmm. be very clear. And I wish more people were clear about what enabled them to do the things that they were able to do. But I was at the time, you know, not making a lot of money, but I was always willing to try the next thing, which is why I went from like people like, how did you leave? How could you leave the New York Times? How could you leave the New York Times? And I'm like, because I was doing something and they at the time didn't support it. And I got a call from a CNN who was really interested in me. I wanted to be where I was valued, but I also wanted to be where, you know, I could learn something. And so going to CNN after the Times was a wonderful experience. I'd never done broadcast cable news ever. Mm-hmm. And next thing you know, I'm sitting and, you know, and, and, and now having to go from writing 1200 word pieces to writing, just speaking about the same topic in three minutes on live television, which is a very different experience. And while I was there experimenting with everything from Facebook Live, you know, to live streaming on my phone to, yeah. you know, doing videos and things like that. So I've always been open to, to learning and experimenting. And from CNN going to Princeton, you know, to teach a class that I developed on race in the media. After that, getting a call from WNYC, New York Public Radio and saying, hey, would you like to host this radio show? So always be mindful that I've never been, and maybe it was youth and, and not having a kid and not having a mortgage that made me a little bit more ambitious in that sense. Like I was willing to walk away when I was no longer happy or satisfied with the position or there was something better on the horizon. So something better has always come. Yeah, it's it's not it's, it was never about the nuance. It was kind no. of the easier story. Yeah. It was the easier story. It was the story that maybe your friends, you know, said. the kitchen logic story that made sense. Right. And it wasn't the actual story. And I think a lot of media coverage unfortunately falls into that. We don't care so much about the outcome. We care about the scandal or the supposed the, scandal, the headline, right? The headline. Right. We don't care what ended up. Ha- There's no like follow through. No one cares what happens after that. And so that's a real problem. Well, what's crazy, and I think about this a lot. I love it when a piece of press does issue a correction. Mm-hmm. But here's the problem. No one reads the correction. No. You know, like the, the headline, the effect, the damage, whatever you want to call it, has already happened. Mm-hmm. And why don't we just slow down and think through the nuance of what what this headline, what the story really means or is going to mean? And that was the kind of work that I try to do as a journalist, right? Being open, and this is something I try to tell young people all the time, is that you have got to remain open. Working at a startup was the one kind of company I had never worked for. So like being given this opportunity, taking it, running with it, who knows you know, how long it'll last or where the company will end up. But this is valuable to me as an editor, as a journalist, you know, to be able to learn these skills, learn words like asynchronously, <laughs> <laughs> you know, and then figure out what that means. And it's also building on experience I've had in the past, right? Being a producer for NewYorkTimes.com and understanding what content management systems are. And, you know, so I look at this as only making me more valuable as an employee, you know, and as a journalist. And I also think, look at what, 
Musk is doing to Twitter and I'm going to have imposter syndrome? I don't think so. So, Tinsley, I, I love that we went there. Like, we went to things, uh, your career in the moment. I wish we could talk longer, but it's funny you mentioned kind of, it, it all comes back to kind of how you were raised and how you, how your, your context was formed. So, so I guess what I want to know is like, if we could, maybe it's like a, a magical time machine tweet, but like, if you could tell that young girl on the Lower East Side, if you could give her some guidance on kind of how to face the world ahead of her that was going to come, like knowing what you know now, what would you tell that, that little girl? You are stronger and wiser and smarter than you're giving yourself credit for. And these, all this stuff that's around you right now, you're going to rise so high above this. You're going to be all right. I love that advice. I can, I can imagine you saying that to yourself exactly on the block where you grew up. Mm -hmm. It's a beautiful, beautiful statement. Thank you. Tenzina. We have all of our guests go through a speed round before we officially end the discussion. Are you ready for speed round? Oh, I hope so. <laughs> that's See, that's the right answer. Everyone's like, yeah, I'm in. Yeah. But Tizina, no one's really ready for speed yeah, round. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> no I'm not ready for it. Go for it. Let's see what I got. Great. Okay, here we go. What is one thing about you that no one expects? How sensitive I am. Hmm like sensitive, like emotional, like very, very sensitive, like perceptive mm. and feeling. And I can feel, I feel so deeply. Yeah. I don't think people really get that. People who know me well, know it. Mm. But people who don't, I don't think they get that. I, I, I mean, again, we've only known each other for about an hour, but halfway through it, I can, I can feel it through the mic. Mm-hmm. Dan, what's a book or a movie that has characters that you relate to? Oh my gosh. Um, Bridesmaids. <laughs> <laughs> I feel like there's another story that we that we don't have time for. I've never that been one. a bride. No, no. <laughs> never been a bridesmaid. Never been a bride. But the film, the characters, just oh my gosh. How who among us has not been in uh what's her name? Kristen Wiggs character, you know, dating the guy who's a jerk, you know. I mean, and then you just feel like so terrible. And then I just thought the, the scene with her and Mary McCarthy at the end when she's like, snap out of it, you know? And I just like, yeah. just the whole thing. It's just like, right. we've all been one of those characters. Maybe we're a mixture of all of them, but I just find that like movie brings me down to earth for real. It's definitely a fun one. What is your favorite mom dish? Meaning that my mom makes for me or that I make? Yes. Yes, both. I don't make anything these days, guys. I'm just <laughs> sorry. Like, I had to make a choice. I can work. I can parent. I can clean or cook. Like, there's right, no right. There's no like, and there. It's no or. Yeah. No. I hear you. So, what about your mom? What about your mom? My mom. My mom. If she can make me arroz con gandules, which is rice and pigeon peas. Ooh, I love it. Nice. Yeah. What's your least favorite food? Ooh, that's a good one. I'm not, when I lived in South Korea, when I lived in Jinju, I had to, I'm not a spicy food person. And boy, there were moments <laughs> where I was like, Ooh, I'm going to have to figure this out. And I love Korean barbecue. I love so much of the food I eat there, but I am not a hot and spicy food person. So 
Yeah. Yeah. That's and that's a big part of that's that's definitely a big part of what they a have. A big part huge of yeah, part, yeah. Huge part. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I had to learn. I I you know, figured it out, worked my yep. way around it. But yeah. You know, it's funny, my, my wife and I, we have a, a great marriage and a great partnership, but I'm Indian and she's Chinese and she can't take spice. And so it's just not in our house. It's like this is this is a thing. <laughs> it's a thing. I guess we'll get a mile. I guess. That's great. <laughs> Yes. I had no issues in China, by the way, with yeah, any of when I was there. Yeah. yeah, it was easy. Uh-huh. Well, northern China, though, could get oh, kind of crazy. Fair it point. depends on where you are, right? Who's someone out there that you would want to talk to on a podcast that you haven't already? <laughs> oh, honestly, I, I know shooting for the stars here, but or at least stars of my generation. I would love to talk to Oprah and or Barack. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I just... I grew up with Oprah. Um, I need to for her to put some of her Oprah pixie dust, you know, on me. I'll live in one of her houses. She'll never even know it. You know, it's just like, <laughs> I just grew up with her. You know, like we grew up, it was four o'clock on a weekday afternoon. Everybody was watching Oprah, you know? And so, yeah, I'd love to have a real, real sit down, down to earth conversation, not, you know, Sunday, super soul Sunday, like something, you know, more raw than that with Oprah and or former president Barack Obama. You'll you'll take him as well if you, if you can. Get I'll him. take it, you know, if he's got nothing going on, you know, if they need a if they're a little bored at Netflix, yeah. you know, nice. he can give me a call. Yes. Kenzina, what does being a modern minority mean for you? <laughs> oh my gosh. Um I think it's for me, it's twofold. It's about as a parent as a Latina, as a Puerto Rican woman, being a parent, for me, it's about, and I'm going to use a, a heavy word here, decolonizing my parenting, working through the things that I learned as a child, the ways that our parents, and, and they didn't know any better, right? So they didn't, but really we know better. We have more resources. So how can I decolonize the thinking in my, you know, as I raise a, a young boy? in this country. And the other one is more to what we were talking about earlier about being a woman of color in a position of authority, learning how to be comfortable with that, learning how to say no. Now that I've said yes for so many years, you know, learning how to say no, learning how to set boundaries and not feel like I'm a failure if I say, look, I need to take a day to pick up my kid or or I need to take a day to for myself, right? Yeah. And yeah. not feeling like I have to pull these insane hours and, and just not care for myself. So I think it, it's twofold. It's as a parent, learning how to decolonize the thinking. And as for myself, just really saying, okay, how can I be my full self in the world? And I think a lot of communities of color, a lot of people of color, we're not there yet. You know, we're not allowed to be our full selves. And that's something that I would love to be able to do for better or worse, where we become, again, that empathy gap, where we extend the same empathy and understanding and and opportunity for growth. And one thing I will say toward now that we're wrapping is that one of the things I did during this really challenging year and change was to learn about restorative justice. And one of the most powerful things If you read Adrienne Marie Brown, for example, has a a small volume called We Will Not Cancel Us. 
And it's about restorative justice in communities of color, particularly activist communities. But we cannot trash each other like the way we're doing. We need to make space for conversations that can lead to healing and that can lead to growth. Not everyone's going to be there. Not everyone's there at the same time. But the way that certain things I've seen get handled is not the way that I'd like to see us move forward as a community of people of color. I'd like to see us have more ability to accept our differences, accept that we're not all going to think the same and be the same and that that's okay. And that doesn't make anybody a traitor, you know, to certain values or otherwise. Some people may want to stay, you know, with their colonized parenting mode, you know, there's just, but so much we can do. And I think we're at a place where, where there's a real need for restorative justice for in our own communities and to help us build a community that we can actually be proud of, you know, in all of its forms and in all of the ways that it comes, instead of forcing us to, to fit into certain boxes and certain categories. So I don't know if that answers your question, but. Uh, it's so much more. I, uh, Kenzie, I mean, the one thing I've always kind of respected about you is you push as a mixed metaphor, kind of you, you push the the margins of the envelope, you push the margins of the box, but you do it in a again a really nuanced way. Uh, it's kind of how you show up to the conversations and almost the editorial lens, and it's just it's meant so much to me o- over the years as I've grown up, and uh, I'm just glad there are people like you doing the work, and I, and I can't wait to kind of see how you continue to do that wherever you end up or whatever you wind up doing. Guys, you're gonna make me cry. Aww. And you're not and you're not the cable company. Oh, <laughs> thank yeah. you. Thank you so much. That means a lot to me. It really does. And that's our show. Like what you heard? Please subscribe, leave a review, and a five-star rating on your favorite podcasting platform. Now more than ever, people need to be hearing these stories. Please share our show with a friend or three. Wanna learn more or got something to share? Visit modmypod.com or email us. Hi mom at modmypod.com. You can also follow us on Instagram and Twitter at modminpod. We'd love to hear from you. That's it for now. I've been Raman Segel. And I'm still Sharon Lee Tony. Remember, we're all modern minorities out there. We'll talk to you soon. Everyone is talking about magnesium. It's all you hear about. But why? What do we know about magnesium? Well, magnesium is the number one mineral that 75% of Americans are deficient in. If you are a woman over 35, magnesium will help you rediscover balance, energy, and vitality. Magnesium supports more than 300 enzymatic reactions in your body, including those involved in hormonal balance. From functional medicine doctors to mental well-being and female hormone experts, we all know that magnesium is the one mineral to improve all aspects of well-being and health. But which one? Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers. The trusted choice recommended by leading experts with seven best-absorbed forms of magnesium to ensure your body receives the support it needs for overall well-being. Go to bioptimizers.com balance today and use code BALANCE10 for 10% off. Support your journey to wellness at B-I-O-P-T-I-M-I-Z-E-R-S dot com forward slash balance. Magnesium Breakthrough from Bioptimizers, your foundation to optimal health and vitality.